Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing great, Randy. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. Nor, welcome back. It has been way too long. As you know, our uh, thoughts and prayers are with you and your family and uh, your mom and your dad. I know it's been a, a tough slog. Uh, Seidel, good to be back. I, I, as a union worker, I didn't want you to forget me as your co-host. <laughs> so I'm back with Gusto and look forward to our conversation with Tim. All right. And uh, unlimited vacation at uh, you know full, full pay. <laughs> For sure. oh, man. So, uh, anyway, so this is uh, episode number 57. Really excited to have Tim Page, CEO of Decision Link. Um, as lots of you know that have watched, there's probably you know every podcast uh, that comes out. I talk about the importance of value selling. Usually I'll say, hey, what's most important if you're in the elevator with the CFO for 30 seconds, what are you going to say or do? It's not a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo. It's a whole bunch of you know value prop things around revenue, cost savings, improved market share, things like that. And Decision Link, amazingly enough, has a great automated tool, which you'll learn more about. And Tim uh, is, has great experience and great background. So needless to say, the uh, topic of this uh, session is value selling. So uh, I've worked uh, with Tim uh, recently uh, with Decision Link and have uh, known each other. We've been probably tangentially involved, but certainly always had a great reputation, great go-to-market. We uh, almost overlapped at, uh, at EMC, but I've really enjoyed coming to uh, get to know him better, work with him more as uh, his CEO role at Decision Link and uh, sponsor, uh, importantly, also of a sales community. So uh, Tim, maybe start off telling us a bit about your professional background. Yeah, great. Hey, thanks, Randy. And by the way, thanks for working together the last number of years, but especially the last six months I've been at Decision Link. It's been, uh, I think what we're doing is all about community. My professional background, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been almost 30 years now. Started off as an engineer out of college, software engineer. Uh, worked for a place, created a product called Track which I won't date myself, but it was before SAP was out. So it was ERP related. Kind of moved from that, learned after that product was released that I could actually talk to customers. So spent my life for two years flying around the world to all different places as we got acquired by United Engineers, but then got acquired by Raytheon. So I ended up in this big company from a really small company. It was based in Ohio um, to, doing, to, to kind of moving into the sales ranks. Moved into the SE ranks, worked at Informix Software a couple places, moved into the sales, back into the sales ranks, operational ranks, ran a bunch of sales teams globally, uh, different verticals, et cetera. Um, spent a number of years at EMC. Um, and I used to call myself the billion dollar guy. I was interested in anything until it got to a billion dollars and I kind of tapped out in revenue. Um, so I did five or six or seven of those and then moved into a couple COO roles. And most recently, it's my second CEO role. So just exited the last one about a year and a half ago. And in my search for the next thing to do, value selling came up, which I had no idea somebody actually created a platform that did it. And as soon as I validated it was real software, I jumped in. So Tim, let me jump in. And for our audience who may not, again, I, I intellectually understand what value selling is, but I'm like you, really curious of how, how do you automate this? Talk a little about the space and why it's important, how it's evolved. Yeah, interesting. So we can, interesting conversation. So, so it, basic selling, right? And all of us probably had to do it back in the day before the internet was up, right? Is if you think of how you prospected back then, literally from knocking on doors to sending flyers out to getting somebody to call you back, you had to be attached to a value prop. 
So what pain are you solving, right? What positive business outcome are you going to have that your product or what you're pushing is going to have for that buyer? 101, right? Then I think we kind of got sloppy and away from it. So in a nutshell, what DecisionLink has done, oh, back into your question, is, is be able to put an interactive SaaS platform so you can interactively move from a value hypothesis with the customer to a business case they build while they're on the phone in a system and able to send them what you talked about in full mathematical and artifact form they can sell internally. So that, think of value selling as basic, right? Nobody's buying a feature function. I listen to reps all the time pushing feature function. <laughs> they're buying what you sell to solve a business problem. It's either a pain they have or it's a faster way of doing things or it's some kind of positive business outcome they're going to have by buying your stuff. More importantly, it sounds like you guys arm that internal champion with the ammunition to be able to intelligently talk about it inside the organization. And as we all see increasingly more decision by committee, here's now somebody who becomes your advocate or your cha- intelligently inside that, that buying organization. So think about how we all were in sales teams, right? You tell your reps, leave them the artifact they can present to the their decision maker right, or economic buyer, and you'd literally build them their PowerPoints. We automate that. So at the end of the call, you can push a button literally and say, who are you going to talk to? My CFO, my CRO, my, you know, CFO, my head of marketing. And based on that persona, you can send them automated with their own logos, the ability for them to articulate what it means to them. What exactly does your solution mean to them? But you've interactively worked with them on it, right? So typically, we've all done this. I've done, you know, $100 million deals in my career that would take a month or a month and a half to put together, and every, every iteration would take weeks. We develop a platform that can sell any persona, any industry, any number of personas, any number of products, and any geo from a simple, uh, a simple model. Wow. How is it, uh, so you're selling, right? Most of our career, we've been selling to the technology executives, but in this case, you actually have uh, selling to the sales side of the house. How does that go and kind of what, what's the you know, process? It's funny because when you think about selling to salespeople, <laughs> right? And they're getting inundated with all these tools nowadays, right? Like I'm a big believer in some of these sales tools I've used, massive believer in them. Yeah. Because they help you do something better, quicker, you can tell things more assuredly. You can predict pipeline, all that stuff. And I'm also a big believer in methodologies, right? I've worked personally with force management my whole career. So I believe in what the PTC guys have done. Um, but being able to actually, you know, talk to sellers. So think of this, Randy and David, right? The average life of a CRO is 18 months. It just is. And we, I've seen this. How many times have we seen this play out? Right. Right. And, and I can already tell you companies already know based on who they have in place, they're going to have it over and over again, either because of the founder not understanding it, CEO not understanding it. It's an 18 month swag. So what CROs have to learn to do, and by the way, a lot of them have, a lot of them have, is they need to learn how to scale, be data driven and attach across, across all business units with what customers are looking to buy and why. Right. I'll give you a quick example off the top of my head, right? There's, there's a bunch of accounts I've always modeled. I'm not that smart of a guy, so I steal from everybody. 
And I go, what are the good companies doing or have done that have exited over $3 billion in the last five years, right? And you got a bunch of them that oddly, I'll tell you, every one of these CROs is great. And they've had their jobs more than two years or more than three years, right? You got AppD, PTC, Mongo, uh, Databricks, DataRobot, Laceworks, Seismic, Highspot, any of those accounts, they go on and on, right? Any of those accounts that have gone big, their CRO is a disciplined, data-driven, value-driven methodology CRO. Everybody else is going to keep churning every 18 months. Mm. And we're selling to both of them right now. <laughs> the guys that get it, get it quick, right? We're selling to big customers. And we're talking to some, frankly, right now that are running around schizophrenically and can't calm down to put a methodology in place for their people to make them productive. Right. And, and Tim, we talked about this. I think a that 18 months is borderline frightening because by the time they figure out where the coffee is they also we've all seen them confuse busyness with productivity right and then the number's always too big can't get there whatever reason and then they're managed out right so by the time they try to get their arms around it i, I think in some ways it's too late and i love your comment that and randy and i've had several cro guests that you kind of they exude their brand is about that consistency and that data driven and that data driven decision making. I'm very methodical about, and they're humble and they're like, you know, I, I got lucky or I'm in the right place. No, it's not. Come on, it, they're just very disciplined about that data driven decision making and the methodology in which moves those the, the needle. Yeah, you, you, it, and it comes down to the basics, right? <laughs> what's the what's the pain you're solving for? What's the positive business outcome you can give them? How do you do it? How do you do it better than your competition? What are proof points of how you've done it? It comes down to the same basic stuff. So it's interesting, David, listening to just kind of as we're thinking through, um, think of how many salespeople, sales managers you know, that 10 or 20% of the team, if they're lucky, are actually hitting their number for them. Right. So Randy, I saw you had Ed Carter on a couple weeks ago. I just thought of this, but I'll throw him, I'll throw him out there because he's a friend. So Ed ran a couple billion dollar business to me at some point. He grew from kind of nothing. And I asked him one day, I said, Hey, who's your best sales manager? And he threw out this guy. And I go, why is he your best sales manager? He's crushing his number. And I go, great. I look at things from the time he started, which was nine months, right? What has he brought to the table? What people has he brought in that have been successful? Blah, blah, blah. Well, what it turned out to be is, yeah, this guy was riding on the two reps who were already good, right? Hadn't brought in anybody. So he was the number one manager from a numbers perspective. But good sales managers look at, and this is what I'm driving inside DecisionLink even, we want first-line managers to make all their people successful, right? And you're going to have to have a methodology to do that. And if they're not all being successful, at some point, it's going to be the rep's fault. But 90% of the time, it's the way the person is managing. You have to have a methodology. Tim, I read somewhere that a typical tech sales and marketing organization has 72 tools in their tech stack. Oh, yeah. A, how do you live? How do you survive? How do you, you know, not get bogged down with, with that overload? And then where does Decision Link fit into that? Because, again, we've had, Randy and I have had yeah. a lot of great leaders, a lot of great, really interesting companies that do everything from call recording to appointment setting and by the way tie it back to salesforce where do you guys fit in that ecosystem and how do you not overwhelm that rep that frontline rep and the manager 
Great question. So think of all the tools that are out there that are meaningful, by the way. I buy, I've bought, I bought a bunch of them. Um, all the tools in the market today are some level of score teeping, right? Predictability, right? And I could name them, but I won't, right? So if you look at CRMs, they all keep score. If you look at success tools, they all keep score. What's my customer score? What's my NPS score? So there's some predictability you can gain off them. But what I found when I came in Decision Lake is nobody outside of being 70% services and slow had developed a platform that could ride above all those platforms to attach the value. So we're working with some of the biggest providers out there today, right? I mean, we're working with Seismic and Highspot and some I can't mention, right? We're working with all the players out at Gainsight we work with, right? We buy them, right? The bunch of players we played with that they haven't elevated to that. What is the value that customers looking at? So here's, here's a good case in point. Uh, customer, I'm actually not sure I can mention them. I've been here five months, but I, I, a big, fast moving, one of the fast growing companies the last decade bought us two years ago because they saw their NRR wasn't increasing as much as it had to. And their success team was going crazy, right? So they had to try to keep over that 120% threshold, trying to tax the value. They had all the, all the tools that we know are out there, but they couldn't put a BVA, a business value assessment in front of their customer that had been agreed to and measure off of that, right? They bought our platform. And with that, by the way, they went from creating 400 BVAs with 50 value engineers to creating, it'll do over 20,000 this year. So fast time to sale, less discounting. On the NRR front, the success team can now take that BVA, validate with the customer, is this really why you bought it? Right, sometimes it's not. Modify that BVA, and then all their quarterlies are measured to that, right? Now, more importantly, you have to upsell your customers every year in the new SaaS world, <laughs> right? So you want to, before it becomes nine months in, as you're trying to renew annually, or, right? You want to show them the added functionality or positive business outcomes you can give them based on your new, your new, uh, your new things you're trying to sell them or expand them with. What that's going to actually add to their business, you can do that with our platform. So this company went up uh, over 130% NRR. They're a big company, right? 80% faster close rate. We drove about $400 million more to their pipeline right, et cetera. So it's faster close, less discounting, and higher NRR. Versus the tactical negotiation of how do I either reduce my, my ARR fee or some other way of getting that renewal back. Yeah. You're always getting hit with that, right? I mean, it's why in our lifetime, right, we've been around a little while, but really three years been concentrated on just making this a SaaS platform. So we're on, we're on a post three-year journey, which is how we're hitting, you know, we'll hit a triple kind of growth this year going into next year, the same thing is because we figured that piece of it out, right? To be able to interactively do it with your customers. So think about getting your customer on the phone, potentially, and say, hey, here's what we think our value is. This hypothesis I built for you. And the person goes, eh, we don't have 15 people. We have 600 people. We don't have this many. We don't have that much process. We use this. We use these tools. You can literally drag and drop and click, and at the end say, is this what you think this would do, right? So to be able to do that, think about the – it's literally AI and machine learning piece of that that you have to create. So it's a heavy mathematical um, equation that you've created 
to get that customer not to have to go back to spreadsheets 15 times over weeks and weeks and weeks. Seidel, this value selling reminds me of uh, when you were at HP, you were driving sell everything on the truck. Unless you tell me otherwise, this also seems like a, a really logical way to add upsell or cross sell of other functionality to that baseline subscription, that baseline value prop. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I'd, I'd kind of follow on, Tim. So what do you, obviously for us, it's a no brainer. We've been doing value selling ever since Jeff Goldberg, EMC, rest his soul. But uh, what do you see out there within the tech landscape of CROs that have value selling kind of on their top five list of things? And then likewise, say for sales reps, and is there any problem getting adoption? Because on the one hand, I would think any rep should totally embrace it. But I know that reps don't, which I still don't get. Can you talk about that? Yeah, good question. I wish I give you a percentage, but it's still a higher percentage that don't that do. Crazy. I name some of the companies that have it. The, the beauty, and this is why I had a valid even come to the decision link, was it has to be easy for a rep, right? So the good sales leaders think strategically and they think one year out, three years out, a decade out, right? Which is, which is a, a lower probability, but you have to think, where are we going? What's our value? And that actually drives how you build product. Every company should be driving around their, um, their pipeline for building product above everything. And then you kind of fit into that. What, I, what, what I'm seeing, and I've seen for years now, I, I don't know the percentage, but it's a lower percentage that really know how to attach to the value. It's a higher percentage that schizophrenically try to sell relationships. So here's what I tell CROs. If 70% or more of your people are not hitting their annual number, then you got the wrong thing going on, right? It's usually 15, 20% crush their number, the rest of the 80% flounder. And then you're paying a huge price with turnover and re-educating people, right? So we found so far, we've got, we're pushing 200 customers now. We're finding is um, we had to make our platform so easy to use, which it literally is once you build a model as a company, that reps want to have it right? They want to have it because it makes them look smarter in front of a customer. From a manager standpoint, it makes all your reps talk consistently, right? Um, so it's, I guess had a head of able to tell me, I've been trying to teach my guys this between a spreadsheet, uh, I mean, a balance sheet and an income statement. And I still can't, I got, we got to do a third training on it. And I started laughing going, good luck. Cause you're never going to do it. Right. <laughs> So, so Tim, that's my question of you. I love that. And Seidel is right. Making it easy and, and it's, it's critical. Um, we see a lot of models where the 20 some year old BDRs are the first pass at it, or they're dealing with smaller size accounts before it goes to commercial, before it goes to enterprise. Is this something that is as relevant to that 20 some year old as it is that the gray haired season kind of enterprise guy? And, and you also mentioned it's really easy yeah. once you build the model. Talk about what's involved in building the model so it becomes rinse and repeat. Yeah, so at the very basic level, this is also easier than people think. Our average model takes two hours to build. Just asking a few questions and we can scrape most people's websites, right? We typically need is what value drivers people have. So how are you differentiating yourself? And the math behind anything you've done, if you have any level of spreadsheets or any level what you think your value is mathematically, if we have those two or three inputs, 
we can build a fairly complicated model based off of live pre-built objects we've done through across every industry. So we've got a thousand pre-built objects we've built that RAI engine interfaces with, right? And then from a, from a learning perspective, as you win a customer, so for example, if a tech company is selling to a provider in the healthcare space and they get wins, our system will track the wins, what business cases they used to win, what were the three or four reasons they won, and it will pull them automatically into um, our system so reps can get, so future reps can go, oh, selling to this persona, this geo, right, who's selling up to these other people, this is exactly what I use to be successful. So David, answer your question another way. So the way we build our models, you can have, you can have them be super dumb. So inside sales rep can jump on the phone with a few drivers they find typically work to get somebody on the phone or somebody hooked. Or you can drill down as deep as you want to go to build that, right? Those models usually take a couple of days to build. Mm. But it. when you change them, it changes. That's why this one company I talked about went from building 400 of these with 50 value engineers to 20,000. Because now it helped them scale. Now the value engineers can spend their time in front of a customer articulating the value instead of building Really, you don't need the math engine behind anything a value engineer does anymore. You don't need it. And this yeah. this isn't just for tech companies. This seems just as relevant for a Siemens and a health system or healthcare oriented as, as it is as it is selling tech. Yeah, it's funny you say that. You're dead on. And this was a big piece for me. I'm a tech guy. I've lived with IT with every CIO in the world my whole career, right? And I've done a couple stints inside. Well, ERP was real early, right? And I've worked for a marketing company. This is interesting because you're right. I actually think um, there's a couple of verticals. You just named two of them. One is industrials because it's getting smarter, right? Industrial people are typically more seasoned, older sellers that have been selling on price per pound. So some of the customers you just named are actually customers today. And I don't know who we can and can't name, but I know we can name, like we, we closed Caterpillar a year ago, right? Who would think of doing that? They want a massive deal about, against one of their competitors because we had all the inputs correlated into why what they build is better than what their competitors build, right? And so we've got people focused just in that space. I think it's bigger than tech because it makes those sellers smart. They're seasoned sellers. They just don't know how to. So think about industrials now. Everything's turned to the Internet of Things, right? You can tell, you can tell components that you build that go on a plant floor they're all now, right? Everything's on, everything's now got software on it that tells you, hey, I got to do preventative maintenance soon, right? This is where I'm running hot on industrial peaks or whatever. And there's a value piece around why you should buy somebody who's perfected their software as opposed to their, you know, just their components and hardware. Mm -hmm. Their reps have a hard time telling the story because they're, you know, they're older and they haven't had to sell software. So yeah, my, to build on Seidel's question, where's the pushback? I mean, the three of us, this is so logical. I, I, I can't see who or why would push back on this. But what if you if you are getting pushback, whether it's from a CRO all the way down to sales rep, Tim, what's the pushback against either value selling or a method that's going to help you do that? So some of the companies I named, they're not all our customers today, but most of them are um, at the beginning. Those guys get it because they value sold their whole career. And all we do is help automate that, streamline it, and keep it consistent, which means their sellers are selling more quicker. I'll give you an example. 
when I came even, I talked to George Kurtz at CrowdStrike because he's got the same CEO of CrowdStrike that's got the same two board members I do, Joe Sexton and Samir Gandhi, right? Two of the brightest guys I know in the world. But he had also used DecisionLink, right? Back when we were 50% services and now we're less than eight, right? So we automated the platform. And Mike Carpenter, who runs sales for him, um, you know, he said he did every deal, if I remember correctly, kind of over 200K, but he was winning 80% of them. And so then he went down to, you know, a lower percentage. I don't know exactly where he landed. And this year went down another percentage because he realized where he used DecisionLink to interactively work with the customer, their percentage of increase of wins and time went way up, right? So George and Mike actually were a big influence on me coming here because just that proof point of, you want to talk about another, I didn't name them in the beginning, fast growing, super disciplined, one of the best CROs in the world company, they use discipline, right? Into how they believe in, so here's where we get pushback. And it's the craziest thing. I can almost tell you based on the CRO if we're going to get pushback or not. I've got my guys doing too many things. This is one more thing to add. And I'm like, okay, we literally take an hour of training for your sales rep, an hour. After we've built the model, which might take us, you know, it may take a day or two to build these things or a couple hours, but it may take some iterations, right? Over a couple weeks before you get all the information. So within a couple weeks, you can have, we're building for a company now, I don't think I can name them either, 20 models in two weeks. Because they want to go to kickoff with 20 models across all their industries built. So our people are doing it. We have a turnkey solution. We build all of them for them. You don't need to have people build them. And they'll be able to communicate that. But our pushback typically is, oh, I love it, but not now. I got, a, I, I got too much going on my people. And I'm like, this is the first thing you should be buying. Not because I'm here, but because you're trying to make it simple and easy to use. That's, that's the pushback we get. Yeah. We don't right now get, we don't think it works. Everybody's spending the money somehow now, everybody. They're spending it either in value engineering or in you know, some ops position, right? So I'll give you another example that happens. I, you know, again, I could name account after account. I think this could be wrong. The average tenure of value engineers is less than 18 months. They keep jumping all over the place, right? In the Valley, they make 300 grand a year. On the East Coast, they're between two and 250, right? So we're working with a company now that we'll be able to name when we close them. We'll close them next week through CROs that we know. <laughs> um, and they had all four of their value engineers leave this year. All they're gone. They have none left. They all left, right? So we can replace the automated piece. They should hire one back, right? But we can do all the equation piece for them because all that IP just went out the door. It's not in a system of record. It's in a complicated spreadsheet with pivot tables. Anyway, long answer for your question of it's people that can't calm down to go faster. Yeah. It's a schizophrenic CRO. Oh. So for those uh, watching, uh, we have Tim Page, CEO of DecisionLink. Uh, I should have said earlier, feel free to uh, chime in with any uh, comments or questions. And we have uh, Tucker uh, behind the scenes here is going to be pull pulling those up. Uh, so, Tim, just thinking, you also had mentioned uh, some of the sales tools. Obviously, uh, from us speaking before, you've got you know, the basic ones like a Salesforce, Zoom Info, LinkedIn Navigator, DocuSign, all that. Uh, maybe talk about some of the others that you view as kind of re really strategic. Yeah, I'll tell you, just, you know, I love my buddy Andy Byrne at Clary. I've used Clary since before it was hardly even out. I love it. I always go public saying that. Um, it helps 
It's a seller's tool on the front end of what I think of CRMs as, as manager's tool. I love Clary because it helps get consistency and measure if you have a value-based selling model or med pick uh, type methodology, which I've always used built in. Clary's a to me, it's the number one thing. You just buy it because it makes your CRM easier, smarter, you know, more intuitive. Um, we use Gainsight. I love Gainsight, right? They keep customer score and NPS stuff and you can do things. And honestly, with a value end, if you have Gainsight, you should have us on top of that, right? So we use it, but, you know, frankly, we use what we do above that. Um, yeah, and Navigator's a big one, right? I mean, people are tired of getting spam, but we're teaching our people to use social media and, and do smart things on social and using LinkedIn Navigator in a smart way, not spamming people with emails on how you link in and get live meetings and that kind of thing. Zoom Info, we use, we've used, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of Hoopla. I like them from a SDR standpoint and keep score or who's setting what meetings and it kind of gives a positive reinforcement. But yeah, off the top of my head, those are, those are some of the, some of the key tools. But I tell you, the first thing I ever buy is Clary. I'll give Andy a big plug, but I love, I love what they have done over the years. So, well, so Tim, I've got a, a different question. Um, I, I think you need a seasoned CRO to be that adult supervision, to bring the experience and the gray hair that none of us painted on. How do you balance, how do you balance that seasoning? And you and Randy spent a bunch of years at you know EMC and kind of old school, a lot of great kind of work ethic and, and all the stuff that you guys do. I think the two of you forget more in five minutes than the rest of the world will learn. But how do you balance that seasoning with this need to embrace really intelligent tools, intelligent technologies, not to work harder. It isn't about, and I've seen sidles of the world work 80 hour weeks. That's not it. How do you, how do you combine that seasoning with this really more intelligent way, more data driven way of working? Because RevOps wasn't a thing when we were selling, right? And I wrote value engineering. I'm going to go look it up and figure out what do these guys do all day? But but how do you combine those two? The seasoning with the with the new tech and the new tools. Yeah, I'm gonna be honest with you. Getting your point, I didn't know what a value engineer was until I started here. People were talking about, I'm like, what is that? It's really a really smart finance person, yeah. right? And there's two of them, right? There's one I've learned that are like really into the the tech spread pivot table part, and the other ones that are really good at getting in front of a customer and helping the sales team really talk about a complicated solution. There's two different levels, right? And so it's, it's, it's interesting, but I used to call them, I hired finance people out of the MBA school that had a brain or had done a lot of stuff to do the modeling coupled with the sales or ops person to do that. But let me try to answer your question this way, see if it makes sense. And Randy, by the way, I'll put a big plug in for both him and sales community. Cause what we're doing is a community, right? It's literally a consortium and we're, we're decision like is working on this now, right? We're going to have some pretty big th things come out with, building community in the sales and success world. But here's the answer. You have to have sales leaders who are smart, data-driven. They have to be a teacher coach. You can ask questions to find out people. They have to like coaching. Um, they got to be able to value sell and attach to a business problem, not a feature function. They have to have grit, high intensity, and high integrity. That's, that's it. And if they can have that package, there are out there. All those companies I mentioned have them right? That are fast growing. Then it makes all the, I'll say the younger generation get really good 
I have two of my kids in the high tech world, right? My daughter worked for some people that are great. Well, I'm going to name a Mongo, right? Cedric's one of the best CROs out there. He's known PTC, et cetera. She learned underneath that group. That group left, went to another company I won't name, and they brought her with her. She's 28. And you should see what she puts together in, you know, she won't even think about talking to a customer without that. My son's doing the same thing, right? There's not a lot of sales leaders that have been coached to do that, that love coaching people. So you've got to have that quality where you love doing it. And you got to have the discipline, right? Do you really do med pick or some form of that? Do you really do it? Do you really think that's a qualification methodology? Then do you have a sales methodology? Do you groom a champion? Do you know who your decision maker is? Do you trial your champion to go, you know, et cetera. And Randy, I think this is where you and I kind of hit it when we talked because we had spent a lot of time around each other is that's kind of what you've done. You look at your sales community space. Most of your sales community are the better people that know how to sell and they're looking for community of how to get better. Yeah. I mean, it's all about, I think it's, you know, continuous improvement. Um, hopefully it's okay to say I was uh, uh, with uh, Chris Riley last night, who's great CRO of uh, Automation Anywhere. Uh, his daughter, Caitlin, is a you know, high-flying uh, district manager now at Dell, and she's done an amazing job. She, uh, not to put in a plug, but um, she sent me a really nice note about her book. Uh, and you know, she said, hey, I tagged it and shared everything, but I think there's just the notion of if you take the Caitlins of the world and you know those that are the you know, seasoned you know CROs, there's just kind of constant desire to improve and get better. And there are the people that do, and there's the people that don't. And obviously, the ones that do uh, are, are the ones that would continue to uh, you know succeed over time. And I'm uh, sure Randy, you see that. Uh, Randy, we had a great comment from Patrick, and after that, I want to reference somebody else we've had as a guest before. But uh, Patrick, can you talk more about the transfer from pre-sales to post-sales? business value engineer to customer success manager and how you've seen those functions work more and better together as a result of value cloud. Yeah. Great question. And easy answer. It keeps everyone a hundred percent consistent on message with why and how people buy what you sell. Cause no matter what you give people, they are never consistent with it. Right? So in the pre-sale, value engineer, and they all have a use, right? So what do you believe you're, oh, I'll give you an example. We're big in security. I don't know. We probably have 20, we almost have 30 security companies now that all compete with each other. Uh, physical, None of them physical have security, the same cyber, value prop. Physical, cyber, what kind of security? Uh, uh, cyber, all cyber. None of them have the same value drivers or the same reason why people, none of them, Right. They use our platform to, to put theirs in. But what it drives, Patrick, is a consistency across, right? And then you can change it. So as you find, hey, customers are really asking us this and not that, you can change the model and it pushes that consistency across your entire org. So you, you're not doing the mundane task of building it and your validations are, are, you know, are, are even better. It's a great question. It's a classic case of the old timers also learning from from the younger, you know, bucks. What's a value cloud? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. So, so, so think of think of us as a value. We're gonna we're changing some of this. I'll give you a little open kimono on it. But you know, we're really value management. First instantiation of what we do with that is around sales and post sales. We have other areas we can go. You can go into the buyer's journey. You can go into crazy amounts of benchmarking on the data we collect. 
which we do today. Why do customers buy? When will they buy again? How does it compete against industry standards, et cetera, right? So think of, think of the data you're gathering while you're running our value cloud that companies can then mine to go understand how and why their customers are buying and what they're probably going to push, push to buy again. I think the other piece with this, we, we, were, we were talking about earlier on a, on a different call, is it, it massively blows my mind how sales and marketing have, haven't combined a lot of companies still. Right. So getting that consistent, it's value engineering, it's pre-sales, it's post-sales. It's all the same engine, right? Which is why there's very few actual CROs out there today. You have a lot of sales leaders. You don't have a lot of CROs that actually can pull all of that function together and make it work, you know, faster, more streamlined. So Seidel, uh, two, two, uh, Two ideas come to mind. One, I love um, Peter McKay talking about spending a whole bunch of time with guys or people half his age just to understand, not right or wrong, but a different way in which they solve problems or looked at scenarios. So that that's one that came to mind. Number two, isn't there someone with the last name Seidel that also joined Decision Link? I, I recall some sort of a Seidel last name coming down to Atlanta for some sort of Decision Link training isn't that isn't that also true tim he's calling him out he's calling him out i love it yeah you know what i'm big on if you get great sales leaders go get their kids right right i won't bring my kids here because i don't believe in it but my kids are under great freaking sales leaders right there you go right? so if uh shannon's watching this feel free to chime in and uh patrick thanks for the question others that are uh on uh, watching as well, feel free to chime in with any questions. And I'll uh, follow up. I was going to ask before, but you, you teed it up well. So the VP of sales role is completely night and day difference from CRO and how that path is going. But talk a little bit, you uh, said a little bit, but talk about kind of the CMO role and kind of how you see that going. And you know, my perspective is CRO should have marketing because that's a whole go to market and the right way to spend and OPEX and everything else. But you know, what's, what's your perspective, Tim? It's interesting. So I always say there's a reporting piece in a company, the way things work. Like I put SDRs under sales because that's what their path is. But 80% of what they do comes from marketing, right? So I learned probably five years ago um, since I, once I became a CEO of putting the exact metrics with sales and marketing as the same thing. I don't want to hear there's a bunch of sales accepted leads or I'm generating all this pipeline, but your sales guys suck. Like it, it's that, that piece has to feel like it's working together. Um, and by the way, every company's going to make bad decisions. That's okay. That's up to the CEO to go. That's okay. What it's not okay to do is make it look like one function working and the other one isn't. So think of it now in COVID, I think I pinged some, I pinged four CEOs over the weekend and been like, Hey, how's your demand gen going? Cause I'm seeing it's a mess right now. People are sick of getting, you know, LinkedIn messages, and they're sick of getting phone calls. Nobody's pick up the phone. If you're dialing for dollars, you're old school SDR, right? So trying to figure that out of how do you get a meaningful conversation that when you have it, have a meaningful dialogue because you're only going to get that person's attention for a few minutes, right? It's combining all of that. So CEOs now should be concentrated on how does my sales and marketing engine, which is going to include SEs and SDRs and value engineers, if you have a thing, finance people, how do you get that on this, that function, one function on the same page with who you're going to market to, how you're going to market to them, 
and what your success criteria is. It's no longer just sales accepted leads. It's, it's, it's tighter than that. Yeah. And I, you're talking about learning before Norris says, you know, we have, uh, you know, Tucker and Jesse who are, uh, you know, I learned a lot from, and this, you know, lead question constantly come up, comes up. And uh, coincidentally, there's some tools Je Jesse's created that we're going to circle back uh, up, up with you on for sure. That's cool. Uh, so uh, yeah, r really uh, amazing. I'm open to new stuff all the time. I guess I, re I actually responded to somebody today because I'm, I'm so, you know, I'm, I know there's better ways to do things to get it at scale has always been the hard thing. Right. Um, yeah, and, and joking aside, the reason I brought up Shannon is a good example of a, a young up and coming. She was at Oracle. Right. So, and, and nobody's ever has to say Oracle who, and having to, you know, go to a decision link is the example of taking kind of that, sales training that sells expertise now over to the customer success side to really start to understand that that and that's my key point is sales marketing rev ops that whole sales and marketing engine tim that you brought up is evolving at a rapid pace and the seasoning of a a really mature and again, I think of Randy, some of the guests we've had, right? Bill Hogan, uh, Jeff Casales, uh, some of these really sharp guys combine that with what this technology can do. And now you're that much more relevant as a SaaS company. Now you're that much more relevant in the hearts and minds of the buyers you're interacting with because you get the relationship component with the executives, but you're also very astute in what you do and how you do it in that process. Tim, is that accurate? Is that is that a good way to think about that? That I agree with you violently. <laughs> and I love, I'll use Shannon for an example, right? I mean, great training at Oracle. There's other, my daughter did the same thing, right? Great training. She'll go from success in a year to sales, right? Learn it, learn why customers are buying it, learn why they're up, right? And that's what I'm a massive believer now. I don't want just SDRs moving into sales. I want success people moving into sales, yeah. right? And frankly, I want, sales managers doing a rotation in success if they have it for at least six months because it's going to change the way they think about the selling process. Uh, absolutely. So let's let's talk about that a second. Seidel brought up marketing and, and he's got a love love relationship with marketing. How, how do you how do you see marketing's role evolving? I mean you brought it up getting those people on the same page. Yeah. Um comment on wh where does the brand that air cover where does lead gen where does all that fit into this this kind of formula this conversation yeah so great question i don't know that i have all the answer right now but i'll tell you right because it's it's changing and i've seen it change a lot over the last three years even right i mean the first thing i do when i wake up is delete every piece of spam i've gotten in linkedin i just delete it. i don't even look at it first thing i do right and i delete all my email from all junk that's come through and then i block everybody that's what i do every morning right <laughs> so if i do that a lot of other leaders are doing the same thing, right? So I think with the marketing element, it is getting really down. I mean, you've got to admit some hard things, right? From your, it all starts with product. What have you created to solve a business problem, right? That is going to get solved by what you do. And then how do you market to that? So how do you get a hook, right? For us, it's, for us, it's, it's an easier hook because it's like, do you want, Deals to happen quicker, drive higher pipeline, discount less. If you do, you should talk to us, right? Through an automated tool, right? Platform that does X, Y, and Z. But getting, getting, it's a hard dialogue to get the CRO and CMO 
right? And head a product in a room and go, what do we believe we're solving for? Then how do you hook that persona on the other end, right? And, and by the way, it's also, I'll give you our case in point, just using us as an example. You're hardly ever just going to call a CRO and, and get them to buy in, right? They're crazy, hyper, got 15 things going on. You need to build consensus, and I've done this my whole career. I always say it's eight layers of consensus within an org. So in our case, it should be talking to reps, first-line managers, success people, SEs, right? And then they should be – then when, by the time you talk to anybody higher, you can say, hey, I talked to a bunch of your reps and managers, and here's what they're telling me, right? So I don't care what you're selling, industrials, healthcare. You've got to build consensus in that org. You're not going to get to one body and sell them. So then you got to get really detailed on how you do that. And then how do you get a live intro, right? So if, if it's tactical on our end, we're looking at the people that have to support to buy our platform. And then we market to those people. So our SDRs can probably only get reps and first line managers on the phone. Great. Go build consensus because they want this thing. They're dying. <laughs> first line sales manager is the hardest job in any company. Right, because you've got to get your people up, successful, etc. So we'll have our SDRs do that, and then we'll use LinkedIn Navigator and other things to get hot intros into higher levels. Mm. Right. So I don't know if I'm answering your question other than it's hard. No, but yeah, you've got it, to call it what it is and then measure it. And what doesn't work, you got to say it ain't working. Let's go switch it out and do something else. And I think marketing folks, particularly in the last eighteen months, saw you know no trade shows, no demo days, no flying executives in for executive briefings. So their roles are evolving and increasingly counting a lot more on intelligent, really well thought out digital touches to enhance your credibility, your repute, your value, right? So great question from, you know, the aforementioned, here comes uh, Shannon Seidel. Um, let's go back, let's go back, to, let's go back to Tim of 10, 20 plus years ago. Oh, what, would you, yeah. what would you say Tim should think about, feel, or do differently? Or 2030, forget about 1020. <laughs> She's telling me. Remember, Shannon, that thing about you moving from one thing to another and progressing here? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's actually a great question. I get asked this. I guess I answered this for another podcast on the fly, too. And I actually thought about it more because you always you kind of think, like, the first thing that comes to me is just relax more, right? I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, right? Um, so I put myself through college, did all that scrappy stuff a lot of us had to do back in the day um, and took a number of years to get through because I got dropping out and working. So I think once I got into the workforce, I was determined to always know I was going to have food on the table and my kids weren't going to grow up the way I do. So I came, you know, your background, I learned, if I just go back, I'd say just relax, <laughs> right? And things will be okay, right? You can, you can, you can, you can think more and maybe not work quite as crazy. Um, I think people matter more than anything. So I've learned it's not dictating what you know to work. It's, it's hiring people and empowering them, right? I've learned, I've learned the hard way. Leaders hire different people that I would hire to work for me that would work to get an outcome because people hire for gaps, for personality, for, you know, different levels of diversity, et cetera. So I would say I'd relax more. I'd empower people more, um, you know, put people first and let leaders do their thing. I guess I've, I've, I guess kind of what I'm doing now, 
if I had learned it 20 years earlier, it would have been would have been better probably all the way along. But nice. yeah, just relax, nice. work hard, think, and you'll be fine. Seidel, yeah. same question of you, young younger Seidel. Oh, oh! Can she get in this thing, or does she have to type it? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, wow, you totally got me. Um, si- yes, side of side of EMC days, right? The hard charging. Yeah, just yeah. Go yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think we all were probably a bit uh, hard and harsh on people. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the I, I changed it a bit to say advice then and things I've learned along the way, but kind of on the coaching and feedback side making sure that you're giving people fair and open feedback um, as opposed to, Hey, you know, kind of you're gone. So that's, you know, I think a maturity cycle that I, that I really went through. And um, yeah, I think it's, you know, leading by example, so you can kind of dictate or, or not, but, you know, leading by example, being in the streets, really, really being helpful. And um, I think we all, you know, Tim, you'd agree just kind of on the, on the, on the personal family side, you know, all made, you know, lots of sacrifices, which you could debate, okay, getting that deal or not getting the deal, that really help or not. And we all have different, you know, family or kid events or games or plays or whatever that we missed, which, you know, you and I probably both can rattle off a bunch. So, you know, it's probably more on the, the, the family side. And, you know, fortunately the world is much more balanced now and with Zoom, you know, it's a lot less travel. So, you know, less, hey, you're gone Monday to Friday and hopefully you're back on the weekend than, you know, what life is like now. Yeah, it's funny. I think, Randy, we, we end up managing people different, right? Like, I really mean when I tell people, don't miss your major kid stuff, right? I miss some. I try to be home for most of it, but I always, I've got four kids, and I always say, I always told them when they were in high school, hey, if you guys grow up screwed up, it's because of your mom, not me, because I didn't have anything to do with raising you. That's actually not good. <laughs> but I've got four great kids because my wife. It's not because of me, right? And so, <laughs> thank God so far. I got two in college and two out, but yeah, I mean, they've balanced because of, you know, the other end of what we had to do, but I'm really big on making sure I tell people I don't work like I done and do, but you know, but you also can't go to the other side of the spectrum, right? Like I'll give you, I'll give you a real example since we're being fly by night. I used to make my kids throw away their participation trophies, right? I'm not that dad that needs a snack at halftime and a participation trophy because you showed up to play football or soccer. But I, so my kids would take it out of the car and throw it in the garbage in the garage. But what they had in their room and they would tell their friends in high school is everything in my room I earned. Nice. Right? So nice. I actually worked hard and I practiced extra. Yeah. So um, yeah, I probably tamed that down a little bit because thinking of my six-year-old throwing their participation trophy away, probably a little rough. A little rough. But they did. Uh, they Tim's- did. Switch gears and give us a glimpse into where you think value management is going in the next. I mean, let's let's get your crystal ball out. Yeah. Next uh, next decade or so, if we're gonna visit a few years from now, where where is value management going? Okay, I'll tell you right now. This is why I'm here. Right, the data piece I talked about is big. I won't go super deep into that because some's proprietary that we're building. But it's okay to say that, right? Everything's based off of data today. If I'm a comp- a CFO at any company. Right. I would not buy anything. Nobody does without a business case. And the business cases are never accurate. Right. It's just like when you remodel a house, tack 30 percent on. That's what you're going to spend. Right. I would not buy anything without going into a value management system, which right now we're the only one on the market. If you don't go into value cloud and key in. So think of myself as a CFO. I create what we think of as a BVA, a business value assessment for my initiative for the year. Right. He or she 
says, this is what I want to get accomplished. Internal employees, services, and external vendors should all have to fit in the value cloud so I know exactly what my outcome is before I buy anything, right? So whatever my initiative is, whether it's faster, better, cheaper, more productive, whatever that initiative is, should get created at the CFO and CIO level, period. I don't care what industry you're in. Yep. So think of value management as that. So people got to start talking feature functioning is selling people. They got to start talking, this is what we're going to give to you and then deliver it. Or you're going to churn. Nobody has to stick with a software, you know, perpetual license anymore. You buy everything for a year right now in the so, software world. So data big, CFOs are going to buy value management. What else? Any other tr key trends you see it evolving next next decade or so? Um, we actually think there's a whole level you can go above this that I won't talk about because I think, you know, that's how we turn into tens of billions from single billions. Um, but yeah, it's all around why would you do or buy anything without knowing what the outcome is going to be and force all the players that are going to help you get to that outcome into, into that. So I think it, it just, it just involves all the way up through stop talking feature function Stop telling me, you know, basic consolidation ratios or how you're going to do something a little bit quicker. Prove it. So tell me you're going to sell me. Prove to me you sold me what you said, and then I'll continue buying your products. Do you also believe in qualitative, qualitative value versus yeah. just purely quantitative? Oh, man. It's funny. We didn't even talk about this. I love you brought that up. A thousand percent yes. Right? So one of the things, the founders, Jim, Jim uh Jim and John both had grown up in all the big software spaces when they were nothing to something, right? I can name all the companies, but you know them all. A lot of them begin with an S and CA and other places. What they built in this thing from the beginning is both hard and soft. So you got to have to have them. So you can, so that, this is where the interactive piece comes in. So your buyer can go, yeah, okay, these are hard costs, but here's what I, and just, you can change it to wherever you want. Right, so you can change at any point that you want. Um, Randy you got short. That's pretty good, Randy. I like that. <laughs> I was gonna say this, that was uh, pretty good. <laughs> this 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 episode brought to you by Randy Seidel. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know what's funny? I was gonna I was gonna send out one time. I love to know what the most embarrassing things have happened on Zoom since COVID hit because that's pretty funny. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But but yeah, I think. Uh, Anyway, no, I, I lost my whole train of thought. No, the, the, the qualitative value, I think, is, is a yeah, lot of times. It's big. Yeah. It's big. Yeah. So call what it is, but you can work it out with your customer now and say, hey, okay, what do you think it is? And let's measure if that happened. Because there's a lot of soft costs that happen in anything that you sell. Um, including, again, a lot of, you know, I think of inefficiencies. I think of stress. I think of quality of, you know, we all hear about this great resignation, the quality of the work that people, that sales reps and managers are doing. I think a lot of those kinds of things are qualitative measures <laughs> and qualitative value. I'm glad you took your swimsuit off and put shorts on. That's right? pretty good. Thank you. Thank you for not showing more than you did on this session. Sorry, my, my MacBook, I don't know, some of the power just went, all, all of a sudden was rattling down. Sorry about that. I got to do something special for Nor. You know, since, uh, <laughs> it's called Wednesday Night Live. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do i do have a question i know i know tim you're passionate about the whole uh, diversity side here before we wrap um you want to talk about some of your best practices there 
Yeah, I, t- big and always have been. So I actually love this question and check us out another six months from now. And I think you'll see even more of it. I'm a massive believer, not because it's a trend or a thing or whatever. I've got a, you know, I've got a mixed household myself, right? From adoption to, um, you know, to, you know, two males and two females and them hitting the work for stuff. It, it's, I've always felt this way. And then living in the startup world, which I started my career with and I'm into my career with, um, is you need, tra- you need different approaches of train of thought to be successful, period, end of story. So whether it's male, female, whether it's ethnic, um, it doesn't matter. Whether it's different backgrounds um, in different spaces, right? I'll give, you, I'll give you an example of that. I brought in as a consultant through somebody I knew, um, Stefan Luis, right, who is the value pricing guy in the world right? French. He's worked for industrials his whole career. He actually helped us redo our entire pricing strategy. His thought process helps me break out of my tech thinking into other areas, right? Also just brought this woman in, Rose Lee, right? She's got great background in marketing in all different spaces, right? Um, We're interviewing some people now, two of them happen to be female, um, that have a background way different than the rest of us. So when when I look at building a team, especially in our stage series A going to series B pretty quickly is what diversity of thinking that can I bring in? Cause if I don't bring it in, we're all going to act like me. We're going to go down the wrong road. So I constantly look for leadership. By the way, I have what I call a leadership team and we're building that out as we speak, which is not e-staff. E-staff is your direct reports that have to run a function, but to run a company, you should have a leadership team which are people that run other functions at different levels. So you're always hearing the truth and getting better. So if that answers your question, but yeah, I mandate it. I don't want anybody thinking like the same person or thinking like me, or we're not going to be as successful as we could be. That's great. Uh, so unfortunately we are kind of at the, uh, at the time here. Uh, we'll give you a chance for any uh, closing comments, Tim. Yeah. Honestly, thank you, Randy and, and David. It's great talking to you. Um, people don't realize how ad lib this is, which I appreciate. <laughs> um, I'm passionate about Randy. I appreciate you and sales community. I appreciate what you've done for us and pulling us in. If we do this right as decision link, we're going to have community offsites with high intensity, I'll say market people. It's going to be success, SEs, salespeople, right? They just want each other to get better. Um, as we go through this, because, you know, I think sales goes through trends, but the only people I see crushing it are the people that have a methodology around qualification. For me, it's MedPIC and a, a strategy, a methodology, whatever they use, right? Visualize force management, something, and then structure that. And then we just help customers extract or potential customers extrapolate that simply, easily, in front of their customers. But honestly, thank you, Randy. I appreciate all you've done and, and have been doing. Great. Thank you very much. Love, uh, love to see uh, everything go, going and growing. And uh, Norg, awesome to uh, have you back. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I took this to Istanbul, Turkey with me. Been <laughs> recommended enough. All kinds of great stuff. This one is actually blank on the inside, but there's some good nuggets in there as well. These two go hand in hand for our audience. 
I love it. In relationship economics, too. There you go. So, uh, so uh, thanks, for everybody, for watching. Next week, we have John McCarthy, who uh, Tim knows as well as a CEO of Mainline. Uh, definitely a great data-driven uh, CEO like Tim and uh, who's been around the block on the uh, sales side a lot. So, uh, John uh, will be uh, fantastic as well. So, Tim, have a great day, great week. Uh, look forward to continuing to watch your success and uh, helping along the way. Thank you. Can't wait.